Hi, everybody. I just finished off a phenomenal interview with my friend Frank Wilczek, who is a really unbelievable, unparalleled intellect in my mind and in many physicists' minds, but also in the public's mind. He does a tremendous amount of, of engagement with the public, and his new book, Fundamentals, Ten Keys to Reality, is now out. Here's the cover. Here's the actual book he's down here. Don't worry. I read the whole book, and I've done uh, now two podcasts with him about it. Uh, but this is my third podcast with him total, if you're keeping score at home. And we got into a great deal of his insights into really, as he calls the book, the nature of reality and what it's predicated on. The foundations of the universe and its comprehensibility are really keys to understanding what the limits of human intelligence are, what the potential augmentation of artificial intelligence might mean for humanity. And, uh, and also prospects for things that transcend the laws of physics, uh, such as religion, uh, alien life, and other things that you'll hear about. You'll also uh, hear about his, his advice to his former self, his answer to my famous monolith question, and also his, uh, his, his ethical will, which you won't want to miss. He promised me that last time when we spoke about a beautiful question back in November, and now he answered it today. Uh, but you only hear that if you sign up for my mailing list at briankeating.com. I'm a little concerned about the powers of, of big tech and people are getting rightfully concerned about technology, perhaps um, you know, controlling our access to, to the fans and the audience out there. So I, I do want to encourage you to sign up for my mailing list at briankeating.com. You'll get advice for life from not only from Frank, but from folks like Jim Simons, and from even uh, people that uh, you haven't heard podcasts from yet, such as Avi Loeb, who uh, recorded a podcast with me uh, just last week. I also have Julian Barber coming up on the podcast. So please subscribe, like, and do all those things for this podcast to keep it going. But do subscribe to my newsletter if you want to hear the answers to the thrilling three questions that I ask all of my guests, including Frank Wilczek, just delayed back in November, but have no fear. You will get those answers right here if you uh, subscribe at briankeating.com. Just go there. It takes a second. And I won't spam you. I'll send out about one email uh, a week with the advice, tips, tricks, and things that are going about and percolating in the multiverse of minds that I'm connecting together in the spirit of pandemic podcasts. So for now, sit back and enjoy this wonderful, fun raucous at times interview with the brilliant, effervescent, and imaginative Frank Wilczek. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Okay, welcome everybody to this episode of the Into the Impossible podcast. I am your fearful host, Dr. Brian Keating, in this time of pandemic podcasting. And we're so fortunate to be joined today by a friend, a real legend, uh, and, and so uh, such a generous uh, person uh, as Frank Wilczek. He's given a lot of his time to this podcast, and, and he's one of the most popular guests that we've had. So it's quite fitting that we kind of return the favor in our small little way and have him back on the occasion of his phenomenal new book called Fundamentals. And we'll be talking a lot about that today. Frank, how are you feeling today? I'm feeling pretty good. You've had a lot of uh, great publicity on this wonderful new book we'll be talking about, Fundamentals. It's been very gratifying. It really has been very gratifying. Yeah, it's, oh. uh, among all my book experiences, this has been 
unique. It's really been, uh, I, I think, uh, I think I've been supplying something that people really needed, even if they didn't know it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, <clears throat> I see you as well, a wanted, wanted, I should say wanted, not needed, want, wanted, even if right. they didn't realize it. <laughs> well, in this case, I see you as, as having a tremendous amount of, of courage. You, you've always been a courageous physicist and a, uh, a physicist with style and, and an actual, um, sort of, a, I would say a brand, which is extremely high quality but somehow with extremely high quantity. And I want to get into that first. <laughs> How, what is your, what's a day in the life of Frank Wilczek like? Now, now you talked about, in your previous books, you talked about your devotion to your wife and Betsy, and then you talked <laughs> about your kids. And this is the first book you talk about your grandchild, which is so exciting. Congratulations. Well, that's the first opportunity. <laughs> yeah, that's right. How, how have things changed I, for I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't hold that in reserve. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the new release came out, right. timed with the book launch. I actually had that with my twins. They came out a week before my book came out. But Frank, what, how has your style changed since becoming a grandfather, or has it changed? Is your workflow, oh. is your daily routine changed at all? Well, not so much be because of uh, having a grandchild. That's been a blessing, and it's uh, subtly altered my view of the world, I guess, or not so subtly. I'm viewing him learning and uh, establishing a self and a model of the world was very illuminating and went very much into fundamentals. Right. Uh, but it hasn't affected my daily life in any very direct way. What's really affected my daily life is uh, the pandemic, of course, which uh, has meant that uh, the the wandering lifestyle that, that I had somehow fallen into for the past four or five years uh, uh, suddenly stopped. <laughs> and uh, uh, whereas I was moving every few months diff to different parts of the world, uh, and you know, uh, that was kind of an adventure, and I made a lot of new friends, and it was fun. It was, it, it was not conducive to a kind of reflective life and and uh, sustained creative work mm. and now I've gone sort of resumed that my style almost like I'm going back to graduate school it's been really an extraordinary thing uh, I completed the book which was kind of you know a struggle <laughs> a, a, a troubled uh, pregnancy for, for quite a while and I got to relax and actually give birth to the book uh, and I've uh, gone back to school in some ways I've been reading more both physics and more broadly and I took up juggling I've been exercising I lost now almost 20 pounds yeah I feel feel younger than I felt for a very long time uh, more energetic, and um, and I'm I've also been learning things. I've I've decided uh, you know that I could 
Well, I could get serious about machine uh, learning, machine learning, and really dirty my. I've, I've, for many years now, enjoyed interacting with computer through Mathematica and this quite a uh, math, uh, uh, physics modeling and things like that. But uh, it hasn't. I, uh, I've been interested in machine learning for a long time. For a long time, in fact, uh, in the history of machine learning. An important event was a workshop at Santa Barbara in the 80s, and I was there. I was there and participated in it, not not as one of the central members, certainly, but kind of as a, an interested uh, quasi-spectator, and I wrote okay. to some of the postdocs. And, uh, and now it's some of those same ideas about neural nets have become deep learning and uh, and have become very, very powerful and impressive. Yeah. So I decided uh, it's time to get back in touch with that and get up to date. And you know, when I when I do something like that, I I really mean it. So you know, I'm learning how to use the tools and the, and and doing model problems and things. Right. So well, <laughs> going back to school in that sense. But also, I I've been carrying through uh, a research program that is uh i think very interesting and promising in, mm -hmm. in many directions so, yeah so i want to it's, it's that that's that's more like what i've always done uh but i've just had more time to do it <laughs> yeah <laughs> well yeah. i i made a vow that anybody who comes out of this pandemic with a six-pack i'm going to be quite upset with and so you might you might add six-pack to nobel laureate uh but speaking of no of a nobel laureates your fellow laureate kip thorne uh keeps uh keeps giving me the cold shoulder to come on the podcast i've had on your colleague ray weiss i've had on barry barish and he keeps saying I cannot come on just now. Please contact me in a couple weeks because it's the most productive I've ever been. I'm turning down every opportunity to uh, to go on podcasts, and I'm just focusing on work. And it's been one of the best things that ever happened to me, uh, it, it, in a work sense. Obviously, I wonder, I wonder it, what he's up. What, I what's, what he's up to. Yeah, well, they're writing a book. Uh, Barry and Ray and Kip are writing a book about LIGO. And I think he's also working on other projects related to uh, general relativity and so forth. But, um, but I do want to get into your newfound peregrinations into the world of artificial intelligence. It, it's funny, this book really goes on a journey from you know natural intelligence uh, through your contributions all the way up to artificial intelligence. Maybe we'll start there. Um, I, you, you talk a lot about, about things in the book, and, and it was funny because I was setting up to do this interview, I had to do one of these CAPTCHAs, you know, these CAPTCHAs where you, you have to prove that you're a human being, yeah. but actually you're yeah. proving that you're not a robot, which are not artificial intelligence, which is the opposite of the Turing <laughs> test, right? Turing test is you want to prove that, you're a, that a, a general artificial intelligence can, yes. can revocate. So I had on Noam Chomsky this past year, or last year now, and, uh, and he thinks this whole notion of, you know, can machines think is as outlandish as Turing ever did, which is that it's sort of nonsensical, it's almost semantic. You put a lot of faith in it, and, and you put a lot of um, emphasis on it, rather, in the book. And I'm wondering, what are your current well, thoughts? it's not on a matter of, it's, yeah, well, it's, uh, to me, it's not a matter of faith. It's, it's, uh, it's a hypothesis which seems very, very uh, difficult to avoid. Uh, Francis Crick, the great molecular biologist, Called, wrote a book called The Astonishing Hypothesis around this very idea. And his formulation was a little bit different, but, but basically it's the idea that mind emerges from matter. 
And uh, that's certainly been the working hypothesis of neurobiology and understanding nervous systems and, uh, and signaling and so forth in the brain. Uh, and so far it hasn't hit any showstoppers. Uh, we also, as physicists, know that when we do delicate experiments, we have to vibrations and shielding from radio waves and shielding from temperature variations and moisture or stray graduate students wandering through the lab or theorists. Uh, but one thing, one thing we've never had to correct for is the possibility that people thinking about it would affect the results. And to, uh, to me, you know. Anyone who thinks that uh, there are souls or that uh, there's there are separate entities that are not described by the physical laws we know, uh, show me. You know, <laughs> here, here's an open invitation to uh, devise an experiment with very very delicate exp uh, instruments and um, you know show the influence of mind on matter. Uh, but we would. Uh, I mean, we. Well, yeah, when you're uh, or, or, or just to show that uh, the accuracy of experiments somehow runs out because there's a lot of cosmic noise from the force that's that's carrying all these thought waves. It's just uh, so so it would be pretty astonishing. So so the, there doesn't seem to be anything resembling the idea of a thought wave that can that can affect matter on the one hand and on the other hand. Uh, as I mentioned, so far, neurobiology has succeeded in understanding more and more about uh, signaling, memory, all the functions that go into human information processing and uh, also just the basic fact that thought seems to be rooted in brains. When you damage brains, you damage thought and so forth. Uh, that, uh, and then on the third hand, uh, we've learned to make minds uh, you know, with, uh, with computers that do very impressive things, uh, all the way from perception now, where they can start to identify objects in images, uh, to, of course, playing Go and chess better than humans. Those were once thought to be the sort of pinnacles of, of human intelligence. Uh, <coughs> and in that case, there's no question that the minds have emerged from matter. In fact, we designed them. <laughs> we designed them based on the principles of quantum mechanics and uh, and logic to to uh, to do these things. And uh, so. On all those grounds, I think it's very hard. It would be to, to me. It would be astonishing if if Crick's astonishing hypothesis were not true. <laughs> but one thing that interests so, is me is is not whether or not you know computers, as you point out, like Alpha Zero and and so forth, can <laughs> beat humans at the game of chess or at the game of Go. Can they ever create the game of chess or create the game of Go? And this gets at my my pet peeve lately, which mm -hmm. is that. I'm not so, I don't care about artificial intelligence. I want artificial wisdom. Wisdom is creating chess. Yeah, well, Knowledge is beating the human at chess. So what do you think about the prospects <laughs> for a computer to create a game that would be pleasurable for human beings, not just beat us at it? Well, that remains to be seen. And I do, I think a great challenge, which is mentioned in the book, and I, I think 
is a very important one, is to uh, make machines unhappy, <laughs> make machines <laughs> uh, want to explore, yeah. you know, to be motivated, to go out and not just not just wait for instructions, but to go out and explore, do things. <laughs> to uh, now, there are hints of that. I mean, there's there's something called uh, reinforcement learning, mm-hmm. which is a strategy whereby uh, a computer is encouraged to explore uh, as well as exploit. Now, so to explore and make mistakes so that it learns what works and what doesn't work. Uh, at present, that's mostly implemented in very limited domains of uh, uh, learning how to play games well or in robotics, learning how to move around in simple situations. But I don't think there's any barrier of principle to, uh, you know, and have having computers watch humans and watch what they do and watch what they like and learn what their motivations are and then to uh, take over some of them <laughs> take over or not take uh, take over is maybe an unfortunate phrase but to adopt some of them right uh, and and, uh, and 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 use them uh and derive pleasure from them uh, well, the uh and, and the other thing is when you talk about creativity uh it's again it's creeping up on us <laughs> but you may have seen uh, uh things like uh this this person does not exist yeah. where you click you can get a, a fo- fo- photographic in style images of people that don't exist that are very convincing very photorealistic uh, and so these are creations yeah and and uh, there are also programs now that uh, can take an image and turn it into the style of Van Gogh or t- turn it into the style of Picasso at different periods. And, uh, okay, they're not quite there yet, but they're, they're, uh, they can do a lot better than I can, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, and then if you leave them to their own devices, they have their own style, which is kind of phantasmagoric. Um, you can look inside images that uh, uh, deep neural nets are making, and, and, and uh, they have a weird charm and certainly creative in the sense that no human artist does anything like that. Right. <laughs> no. <laughs> when, yeah. when I think about that, I mean, my father used to say, you know, one, one promising avenue might be to replicate how we learn things, which is by pain yeah. avoidance, right? So you could actually damage the transistors, you know, and they make a wrong choice. <laughs> uh, I wonder if they would actually come about learning. But, but you know, I always point out, and you talk about this a lot in the book, you know, the, that what science has taught us is tremendous amount of knowledge. And I see this book as helping us synthesize in the sense that Isaac Newton, as you describe in the book, would, would do analysis and then synthesis. But I wonder, you know, can you ever broach that, you know, blood brain barrier between knowledge and wisdom? In other words, I, I see a lot of uh, a lot of issues with 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 the fact that we trust scientists and we say scientists so and so has a Nobel Prize and and therefore we should trust them. 
outside of their domain of expertise. That's, that's not a good reason to trust anybody. <laughs> <laughs> I've had experience with Nobel Prize winners, and they they're very uh, they're a very odd lot. And uh, <laughs> some are better than others. <laughs> yes. Uh, but, but I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm actually working on a, on a book where I'm going to synthesize all the all the Nobel <laughs> laureates I've spoken to, including you. So look for that coming out this year. But um, but in reality, I see this this conflation of knowledge and wisdom, and and I see your no. book is giving ammunition and giving a positive way uh, to people to think about the the limits of knowledge, but also inspire them. You know, it's your, it's your, I would say it's your least technical of all the books you've written. I think you've written oh, yes. four books. By far. It's the most accessible. Yeah. It's yeah. the most awe-inspiring and wonder-inspiring. It's full of jokes. Uh, it's full of little pithy <laughs> footnotes, which, you know, usually they say, you know, footnotes are like receiving a phone call as you're kissing your wife or something. But but now it's <laughs> our husband no, or whatever. I, I insisted. I insisted that the footnotes not be numbered. Yes, I love them. They're asynchronous. They're asynchronous. And also that they just appear right there. So you don't have to thumb through the book to get the foot. And the footnotes are not, you know, not citations. Right. I think, I don't think there's a single citation in the footnotes, but, uh, yeah. but kind of side remarks, jokes, as you say. And yeah. Just, uh, it's a very but, accessible, it's very readable <laughs> for the, for the average lay person. And, uh, right. but also for the technically minded person, you have some, you know, red meat or tofu, whatever you want to call it for the vegetarians that may be listening in the back, you've got <laughs> your Feynman diagrams. Don't worry. There's, there's plenty of technical uh, goodness there. Let me start with your current thinking about, really the fundamental fundamentals. What are the most fundamental fundamentals? You start off with space, with time, with experience, with genes. What is there, a, you know, as George Orwell said, you know, all well, animals are equal. Some are more equal than others. Is there, <laughs> are, is anything as fundamental? Everything is as equally fundamental, but is there something more fundamental? Well, well in order to have a clear discussion of this question, we have to have a clear discussion of what fundamental means and yes. fundamental can mean a lot of different things it means it means a very different thing to a an evangelical christian than it means in the context that i'm using it what what i mean by fundamentals for purposes of fundamentals 10 keys to reality is basic principles that explain a lot but that can't be explained in terms of anything else mm -hmm. so for instance the second law of thermodynamics is a very insightful, profound principle that tells you a lot about how the world works, but it's not fundamental in my sense because we can understand it on the basis of atomic structure and concepts of probability and uh, you know, the, 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 the mechanical view of the world, if you like, broadly considered. We can, we can see how it arises. Uh, Cosmology also comes into it, actually, because you have to understand why we we happen to find low entropy states all over the place. But but that's the side. That's another issue. Anyway, uh, but so what I mean by fundamental is basic principles about how the world works that cannot be explained in terms of more basic principles. That and. The fact that there are such things and that there are just a small number of them that you can survey uh, is a profound, profound discovery that uh, in, in itself. And then you know, 
spelling out exactly what there are that they are is also interesting <laughs> Mm -hmm. But the most profound thing is that there are such are such a few principles that that uh, that you can that you know that just like Einstein said the the most incomprehensible thing about the world is that it's comprehensible or what he actually said is that uh, it was I think it was in German originally but a, a pretty good <laughs> translation would be the comprehensibility of the world is a miracle. <laughs> <laughs> and, and yet we have uh, plenty of plenty of people wanting to make it comprehensible. I think um, yeah. when when I read the book, I come across first of all, you know, it's not simply touting accomplishments and so forth that you personally made, although you have made contributions to this. When you decide that a problem is worth your attention, I mean, it seems like you've stored in in some memory bank in your brain, uh, the fact that machine learning is interesting, and you happen to be at this, you know, epochal conference in Santa Barbara, etc. Uh, so what what makes you decide that um, it's time to write a book, or it's time to pick up a new project and perhaps leave, you know, particle physics, QCD behind for <laughs> cosmology and dark matter? How do you decide that? What is that? Yeah. Is there a rubric? Or it's just whatever happens to interest you? <laughs> Well, it's somewhere in between. I mean, there's, there's certainly an element of playfulness. I mean, I like to say my operating system is think, play, repeat. Uh, so, so I think about something, then I play around with the ideas and uh, then think about it again and repeat and, think, and see if, see if they get better. Uh, but, uh, but, I guess there are two basic factors plus a third kind of ingredient that goes into this process. So the basic factors are uh, the importance of a problem and uh, and the and the percept my perception that I think I can do something about it. <laughs> So, so there are some problems that are, and but then the, the third thing I wanted to say is you have to what is what is a lot is hang a lot of weight there is being put on the word important. How do you decide what's important? Uh, okay, so things can be important in different ways. Things can be important if they're fundamental, <laughs> as we discussed. Things can be important if they have. Uh, the possibility of doing useful things in the world, and we can allow a very broad definition of useful, like pushing the frontiers of knowledge in some way or making something observable that was only latent about the world, to me is important. Uh, and then, uh, then there's a third thing, which is just making things more beautiful, it's more aesthetic, that uh, improving the description of the world. If I perceive flaws here and there, that's something that I've often, uh, or, you know, perceived flaws or gaps in our understanding of the world. So, so that's the third. So that's the, that's kind of the third factor, which you might 
you might say jokingly, is irritation. If something irritates me, <laughs> that, that's uh, well, it, important, it, it, uh, yeah. important, addressable, and irritating. Those are the three <laughs> axes. <that's, laughs> All right. Well, we've got a note. That's uh, that's a keynote for this talk. Uh, tag to, uh, It has to be important, right. uh, interesting, and irritating. Right. The three eyes was it? <laughs> but I want to ask you something. When you came up with axions, I mean, axions aren't particularly beautiful except in the sense that they might solve a problem so they're not beautiful in the direct oh. sense that you know your equations are it's more important that they're beautiful than that they're right because oh, no, you're i don't agree with that the, well, the equations are quite beautiful um that the uh yeah they, they they turn out to be a when you boil it down and well the original model implementations were not particularly beautiful and yeah. i should you know the, to yeah. this day there's no really beautiful derivation of the basic principles of axion physics they are tied up in questions of unification where we just don't know enough detail to pin it all down uh but uh if you do kind of abstract away that you can get a very beautiful set of equations which are kind of a minimal extension of maxwell's equations to include one extra scalar field. And uh, now that I think about it, I, I never thought about it this way, but it's like, in a way, it's like Brand's Dickey theory, which is a famous extension of general relativity to include an extra light scalar. Uh, but this is much better motivated and much, uh, much better. Uh, and, and I think the equations are more beautiful. And it's not just me that thinks that nature thinks it, it turns out that these very equations uh, govern the behavior of certain states of matter in a, in a very profound uh, sense, they are the effective theories of low energy, you know, with different names on the symbols and different values of the parameters but the same equations they govern the behave the behavior of low energy uh, excitations and the interactions of certain materials with matter the, the so-called topological insulators in fact are uh, mm -hmm. uh, examples of axion electrodynamics and uh, i'm very proud that i wrote a paper back in the 80s, I believe, called Two Applications of Axion Electrodynamics. And in that paper, you will find the equations that govern topological insulators, <laughs> even though I didn't know anything about topological insulators. <laughs> Nobody, you know, they were still a, still a, a, not even a gleam in the eye of anybody, but the, but the equations have a life of their own. When we so look at they're very beautiful equations. Yeah. When we look at and also another aspect of it. So I'm 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 sorry, I'm getting exercised because you said that axions aren't beautiful. <laughs> I just side. said the problem of spontaneous <laughs> symmetry. I mean, obviously the most beautiful thing is is perfect <laughs> symmetry, right? So they don't have perfect when, symmetry. When, when when I was first thinking about these things, I really didn't uh anticipate that uh there would be a, an important connection to cosmology. Right. And yet it turns out that the equations are Again, there's more in them than, than we knew, and uh, it turns out that very plausibly the axions make up the dark matter that cosmologists need, and we'll see. <laughs> right, we'll see, we'll see. <laughs> the, the reason I said it's not beautiful, I just said the underlying symmetry is broken, and, 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 and in oh. fact, I think most people equate you know perfect symmetry with perfect beauty, so that, that's the only reason I'm saying that you were guided oh. by... 
Uh-huh. Yeah. Yes. Well, but it's broken in a very, very particular way. Right. So the way that it's broken is it's it's I would say, yes, it's broken. It's a broken symmetry. So it's an imperfect symmetry. But I would say uh, it's an opportunity to expand your concept of symmetry <laughs> so that that nature gives you a, uh, a uh, an, an opportunity to expand your mind by expanding your concept of what a symmetry means from the vulgar idea that it has to be perfect right. to the idea that <laughs> that it can be sort of a, violated in a very particular way but let me let, let me not let that go though because yeah it's actually also true uh, of uh, asymptotic freedom hmm. asymptotic freedom you know scale invariance is a possible uh, symmetry of the world that you know that think the the laws could look the same if you made th- everything bigger, and that's definitely not true of gravity. <laughs> it's definitely not true of other laws, but it's almost true of the equations of QCD that they're scale invariant, and and that was really one of the important clues that led us to those equations was to try to get as close to that symmetry as we can, and asymptotic freedom shows the asymptotic is that that symmetry appears more and more clearly as you go to higher and higher energy and shorter and shorter distances. Mm. So it's another kind of symmetry that's never fully realized, but is violated in a very structured way and can be fully revealed kind of as a limiting uh, perspective, a limiting uh, uh, behavior. Right. So symmetry, yeah. So... I find it really delightful and even more beautiful when you have an expanded concept of symmetry that that can uh, that can be applied in new ways. Right. Uh, yeah. And we yeah, can go, when, there are other examples, that, that, but broken symmetry is is uh, both. But bro- I say broken symmetry is not simply the absence of symmetry. You can have approximate symmetry. You can have spontaneously broken symmetry. You can have anomalous symmetry. You can have uh, symmetry broken by by, by quant by uh, asymptotic symmetry. I, so all the we symmetry has been a dominant uh, motif or uh, dominant theme of especially twentieth century physics. Not just because it's sometimes completely realized, but because it has all these possibilities for fruitful generalization, uh, and nature likes it. Na- nature likes them. That's you know, we, it would have been very hard for people to dream of them, but but nature led us to them. Uh, right. I always point out there's a famous um, there's a famous study where they take uh, the most handsome man in the world. I, I was busy that day, so they, they took Brad Pitt. <laughs> they took Brad Pitt, and they take his face, and they cut it down the middle, and then they reflect oh, yes. the right side onto the left side, the left side, and he's grotesque, uh, you know, even more than he normally is. And so perfect symmetry, yeah, perfect symmetry is not beautiful, at least a human conception. And I want to talk about, you know, how the human beings come in, come into play in this book, uh, because we live... I guess that's another Sorry, that's another theme in music. You you don't play this. You do theme with variations, and you, that yeah. enriches the thing, right? Yeah, and counterpoint yeah. and so forth. Yes, yeah, so I, I say the only instrument I play is the iPhone. That's the only one I'm competent in playing. <laughs> 
Hi everybody, just a quick break to remind you to subscribe to my newsletter at briankeating.com and also like, subscribe, leave a review, an asterism, a constellation of stars ranging from one to five. I hope on the five side, but it's up to you if you think I could do better. I read each and every one here. I'll read one right now just to prove to you that I do read each and every review that I am blessed to get by you, my listening audience. So here's a recent one that I got. Brian Keating is a schmuck. No, 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 that is not. That's from mom. How could you do that? That's that's awful. Uh, but no, there's uh, this is a hidden gem, a wonderful resource. Uh, this is uh, a review. This is given by, I don't see the name, but I do read all the names. Another one is by someone named Sib Kanak, and he or she says, no pretension or repetition to fear. Thank you, Sibanak. Brian is, uh, as a podcaster, actually, he or she calls me Brain as a podcaster. Thank you, Sibanak. That's why I have that name, because people confuse me with someone with a brain. Uh, but Brian, as a podcaster and moderator, holds easily the balance between the known and the unknown in a way that socially engages the listener without insulting the intellect. A great discovery on my part. Thank you so much. Another one from <clears throat> Lalo San 16. Dr. Keating is a very well-prepared host that keeps the conversation professional and gives the welcoming sensation to the listeners. It takes time to do read a lot of the research in books. By the way, I read every book. I read 52 books in the last year alone, and I loved every one of them. Uh, so thank you for that. Tyler says, Brian gets great guests, asks great questions, and is brave enough to speak to a wide variety of people and ask them questions that many in academia often shy away from. Thank you very much, everybody. I never shy away. I never dumb it down. And I always encourage academic freedom. So please do subscribe. Leave a review. It really helps me. I'm trying to keep it ad-free uh, for the time being. And I will do so uh, if you guys continue to leave uh, me some feedback and subscribe to the newsletter. So briankidding.com. There it is right there. And, uh, and do me that wonderful favor. I appreciate it very much. And now back to the remainder of our conversation with the, uh, with the noblest mind of the Nobel Minds universe. Now, there are many, many uh, Nobel laureates that have come on and many that aren't. So it's, it's quite a treat. But today, a special treat because it's the, it's the book launch for Frank Wilczek's Fundamentals. Pick up a copy of a link in the show notes and you can get one yourself and you will enjoy it. And it's a rather quick read, which I appreciate having so many books to read. So many awesome guests coming up and really just so blessed to run this podcast. Thank you so much. Enjoy the rest of the show. I think another aspect of this book, we talked a little bit about that with Deepak Chopra and Leonard Milan now, is, you know, kind of cosmic humility that we're sort of in this, you know, uh, we're sort of at this geometric mean between the largest scales in the universe or I don't know, exponential, logarithmic geometric mean, maybe, uh, between the largest scales <laughs> yeah. in the universe and the smallest scales. In some uh, ways. Yeah. Is, that, is that, you know, sort of, as Galileo pointed out, you know, animals can only be so large. You can't have an elephant the size of, you know, the Leaning Tower of Pisa. Yeah. Is, is that just an accident? Is there some anthropic, you know, kind of correlation? You, you talk about the, you know, the variety of scales oh. as, as, a, as another type of fundamental property of our universe. Can you talk more about that? Well... It's complicated, and I think it's time dependent. Uh, but yes, the scale, the the size that we are, is we're we're in a very sweet spot. Actually, <laughs> we are large enough to com to com comprehend a uh, a very you know a very large number in the objective objective sense, much much larger than one <laughs> uh, of independent processing units, neurons that are themselves complicated and stable, so they're composed of zillions of 
to speak scientifically, zillions, <laughs> zillions of atoms and molecules. You heard it here. Nobel laureate uh, uses zillions. And, and, and they, support, <laughs> they support complex patterns and information processing that, uh, that we call mind. Uh, and yet... Uh, we don't exhaust, no one of us, or or even humanity as a whole, does not come close to exhausting the resources of the physical universe. We're here on this little planet inside a modest solar system, inside a, a, an average galaxy, inside a huge universe, and maybe a multiverse on top of that. <laughs> maybe. Uh, so uh, so we're, we're both large in the sense of uh, having enough uh, independent complexity, pro programmable complexity, if you like, or dynamic complexity to support very rich experience and information processing and all the wonderful things that come with being human. And yet uh, there's a lot left over so that in the future, uh, the, the vanguard of intelligence can can keep expanding and uh, and the, now we get into the dreams of science fiction like Olaf Stapleton of galactic brains and and things which of course uh, are still the future <laughs> and may may take a long time to be realized if ever but uh, but we're we're in a sense, we're starting to get there. We're sending out, we're establishing uh, the whole world as a communications network. You know, I can talk to you across the continent. Without, I don't give it a second thought anymore. But, you know, you, I, I'm old enough to remember when that was not remotely a possibility when it was, you know. <laughs> now you have a studio. Uh, and, now you've got your own home studio. <laughs> right. That's right. And, uh, and, you know, we can send out robots that are complex and actuators to different planets and explore them. And we can, so we have intimate, uh, and it's going to get better and better. They sort of out of, I've had some out of body experiences controlling robots in other places and being embodied and having conversations with people. And uh, it's a very, it's a transporting experience, literally, you can mm. feel. And I think that the idea of distributed intelligence both uh, as a continuation of sort of individual human identity, but also kind of a group consciousness uh, is is on us. It's, and it's, it's only it's, and it's going to flourish. And so we're not limited by the size of a human body. Um, so that so that OK, so that I guess that's that's what I, that's all I wanted to touch on. We, <laughs> we are very big. We are also very small. And we're growing. Those are the three points, I think. Mm. That <laughs> right. And the universe is growing, too. Although, given yeah. your diet and your loss of weight, you're shrinking and I'm growing. But we're conserved. I I'm conserving the amount of mass between you and me. My shell is getting smaller, but my brain is getting bigger. <laughs> <laughs> That's the most efficient packing mechanism. Uh, I actually talked to astronaut Jessica Meir not too long ago, and she said, not only are you know, women, you know, kind of better suited to go into space because they have a higher strength to weight ratio, especially in space, but they actually have slower metabolisms. So that makes them more efficient consumers of energy 
And I'm thinking, yeah, but their their brains might work a lot faster than our brains as men. And so, uh, yes, there might be a, a triple threat for women to. So hopefully, she'll be the first woman to set foot on the moon. Uh, she's uh, she's an amazing right. amazing person. I want to ask you a question that I've always wanted to ask you. You're a theorist. Uh, you 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 delve into you know the the observational consequences of your theories. What is the most beautiful experiment? or maybe one or two experiments that you've ever seen in the history of, let's say, oh. modern physics. Let's not go back to you know Cavendish or whatever. Let, let's stay with modern physics last 100 years or so. Oh, I thought you were going to ask about the things that came out of my theories. Well, let me start with those anyway. I'm yeah, yeah, I will. I, okay, go ahead. Start with those. <laughs> because there's a personal element to it, and, and I don't want to give up on that right away. Yeah, okay. But then I'll come back to the most beautiful period. Uh, so to me... Uh, the two most beautiful experiments that kind of relate came, spoke to me on a personal level because they came out of my work in some sense are uh, seeing jets in QCD where you almost literally see the Feynman diagrams that we calculated <laughs> <laughs> with quarks and gluons and anti-quarks, not as individual particles, but you see their tracks as where well, you see several part, several actual particles moving fast in the same direction. And so it plots out a, a flow of energy and momentum that tracks the properties of the underlying quarks and gluons. And it is incredible. I mean, you know, I remember distinctly as a graduate student uh, playing with these Feynman diagrams and, and doing the algebra and uh, the idea that this would actually be a tangible, almost a, like a map of the physical world is is just just mind boggling. And, and, and but there it is. And so that's that's one beautiful kind of experiment. And uh, and the other was much more recent, kind of a bookend to the to the beginning. And so far, the latest chapter of my career is uh, was the Enion discovery where uh, the Enion observation where we predicted that in a certain state of matter, uh, the emergent particles would have some peculiar kind of memory that uh, if you have one and what the other one another one winds around it that affects its behavior and uh, this this summer june or july uh, an experiment was done that actually saw this behavior and and uh, uh, it would take a, a bit of patience on my part, and also more important on your audience's part, to fully to fully explain it. But uh, you see certain curves that have discontinuities when one or an, or two or three, you know, it's an integer number of these funny particles that fall into your trap. And uh, each time they do, you see a change in the behavior that's discontinuous, and it's extraordinarily beautiful. And the experimentalist did a good job of uh, false coloring <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and sort of presentation of their data. So it just leaps to the eye and it's, it's, uh, uh, it's just an extraordinary um, uh, correspondence between reality and theoretical understanding. That was uh, very beautiful. Uh, but, so now going back to your, so those are the two for me in my personal experience that have just, you know, sent me into a, a, a different state of consciousness. Mm -hmm. I was walking on air. 
when I saw <laughs> for, for several days when I saw these things. It never fully came down. Uh, the, uh, <laughs> um, uh, uh, the, then, uh, uh, but, but if I think about the most beautiful kind of phenomenon that uh, sort of is, you know, I don't want to go back to ancient history or so. And it's, it's, you know, it's hard to hard to not take that for grant these things for granted, like Newton's laws of gravity and so, or even general relativity. Uh, so novelty is also an element of, of beauty. And to me, the most beautiful kind of experiment that emerged from 20th century physics is the Josephson effect, the mm. AC, jo the, the Josephson effects that are these extraordinary manifestations of behavior of matter in a superconducting state when you have little insulating layers between two two superconductors. So something you would never, ever stumble onto without uh, profound understanding and intuitions about the behavior of matter uh, when quantum mechanics dominates its behavior and really st stunningly surprising behavior that a constant voltage gives rise to a non-constant current. Uh, and uh, then as the icing on the cake, so it's rooted mathematically in deep principles of gauge symmetry and sort of quantum mechanics at its most raw, basic, uh, fundamental uh, level. And, and, uh, and it's led to a, a, an important technology, a very important technology oh, yeah. that I don't think is exhausted yet. No, we uh, use it in our, all of our detectors in cosmology. Yes, <laughs> right, right. So, so that to me may be the most beautiful. Uh, yeah, it's hard to believe it's coming up on about 60 years of, of Josephson effect. Yeah. <laughs> uh, for me, it's the Aharonov-Bohm effect because it's so strange, you know, that this thing that we... <laughs> we ascribe almost no reality to in classical physics, then not only yeah. seems to have a reality in, in physics as a whole, but also in quantum yeah. physics. And, and they're not yes. unrelated, I suppose, to the Josephson effect where it's a phase dependent effect. But it's also not unrelated to any, it's very related to any ions. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. So can, actually, can you, can we take a little break? Cause it's not so often I get a chance to, um, to ask someone of, of your stature, the most basic questions <laughs> of life. So, um, when 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 you think of these things, is it is it that you are you know kind of is it is it that fortune favors a prepared mind? Is it that you've you worked so hard as a young person and and you paid your dues and and you put in your hundred thousand hours <laughs> and, and, and then all of a sudden these ideas just flow to you? Are you an idea machine? How? how what, what is your kind of a secret? Is there anything that we can learn from you? Let me just put it that way. Is well, there any habitual? I, I, I think I love to learn things. And then, so it's not work for me. And uh, I've always been kind of a sponge of absorbing. I'm not so good at systematically saying, oh, I'm going to study this. And then, uh, you know, without... Without, uh, how should I say, without loving it already, I, but but I fortunately for me for my career I love a lot of ideas and then, and then just dig deeper and uh, I've been very fortunate in in uh, go, uh, going to the right schools and meeting some very uh, 
great thinkers that I was in resonance with, you know, all the way from Bertrand Russell to, to Herman Weil to David Gross and each time uh, uh, learning something new and a different in uh, uh, Einstein and Feynman, you know, the, the old and uh, Darwin, you know, the, <laughs> you didn't meet uh, Darwin, though, right? <laughs> No, I didn't meet Darwin. No. <laughs> You're like the youngest uh, Nobel Prize winner uh, that I've nor, nor did I meet, no, I didn't meet Einstein either, although, you know, he died when I was four years old or something. Right. So I could have met him. But, but <laughs> a colleague yeah. here who did meet him, Lyman, <laughs> Lyman Spitzer's son is a professor here, Nick Spitzer at UC San Diego. And he remembers seeing him, uh, you know, rowing in a rowboat <laughs> and Einstein, you know, at, uh, at the Institute for Advanced Study. Uh, I see you also working, well, but, you do work but, with... Uh, but, uh, but, uh, I mentioned that I'm learning artificial intelligence and yeah. machine learning now in a serious way. And over the years, I've I've uh, I've, I've maintained an amateur interest in that. I I had an amateur interest in cosmology, so that went which I was able to heighten when it became clear that the emerging ideas in high energy physics could be used for cosmology. Uh, I had kind of an amateur interest in. The rest of physics, <laughs> that was not fundamental particles. <laughs> uh, but then when I realized that the, the insights that we were developing in particle physics could be applied in this, be, to describe interesting new phenomena in, in matter, I took I educated myself more systematically in that, and so 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 it's a combination of sort of general awareness of what's out there, uh, and occasional obsessions or sensed opportunities that I seize on. But so I think the thing, I mean, okay, I can't speak for everybody or even for anybody really, except myself. But the, but to me, it seems to me, looking at other people, what sep one thing that separates my style from others is that uh, I'm kind of an omnivore of <laughs> ideas. <laughs> I, just, I, uh, I graze in all kinds of different directions. And, but you're not a dilettante. Uh, I mean, there's a danger you could be a Oh, no, no, no. Yeah. No, a ser I have a serial attention on that goes... You know, when I, when I, well, I don't think I'm a dilettante. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, uh, that's just what a dilettante would say. <laughs> I, 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 I put honest work and in, into every single paper that I've written and I've written a lot. Yeah. Uh, so I go very deeply, at least for the time I'm writing the paper, but I do have, as you say, uh, for instance, in QCD, uh, I, have delved from time to time back in particular things like uh, uh, color superconductivity or uh, uh, well, notably color superconductivity, but also the phase structure of QCD and sort of cosmological implications of QCD. But basically, I abandoned the subject mm -hmm. <laughs> and I'm, uh, I, I, as, as a subject in itself. And, and that's been my style. I, I do something, uh, you might say, skim the cream or do, do make a contribution that's that I'm happy with and then move on to something else. As well. <laughs> and you work with um, small groups, I would say you don't tend to work in huge collaborations is uh, would, would you say that 
you know, part of your success is, is your ability to focus, you know, relatively, you know, la- I always say laser focus is not actually correct. It's laser collimation. When people say laser focus, they mean laser <laughs> collimation. But um, when you collimate your mind, is it best done by yourself or with a student or two? Seemingly, it's not with well, large groups. I think in, uh, I've worked in both ways. Uh, so... I often, when I have a new idea, I share it with uh, friends and things, and, and sometimes it resonates and results in a collaboration. There have been a f- several occasions on which where it's worked the other way, where some people have brought me into the, their investigations, and uh, uh, and you know if I feel like have and so it sparked if it sparks my imagination, I uh, participate. If it doesn't, then I don't. <laughs> then, uh, uh, so usually it, it only it really only usually sparks my imagination if it's something I've been at least close to thinking about or uh, related to uh, things that I have been thinking about. Uh, so but but yeah, I, I uh, I'm always looking for new adventures. But I also and see you as, as communicating. Some, some of them are self-generated, but self-generated means based on reading that I've done or annoyances that I felt about the way things should be and aren't, <laughs> or, uh, but also sparked by conversations with colleagues, uh, sometimes by colloquia or seminars and things. Yeah, so yeah. just um, uh, my mind is open, as, <laughs> as Erdos used to say. That's right, Erdos <laughs> said that. Except, and he also said when they took away his, his amphetamines for a month. They, he said that you set back <laughs> you set back the progress of mathematics by one month, but I know that's not a problem for you. I do want to close out by uh, the, uh, talking a little bit in the book. One of the things that really resonates with me in your writing and in your speaking is that you have a courage, and I think you know for scientists nowadays to even mention something from the Gospel of Mark. I mean, it shouldn't take courage to do that but you do it and and i wonder when you write things in the book you quote from matthew and mark and you quote uh you know these other kind of astonishing things you know from from theistically inclined individuals shall we say but my and and i am as you know uh, i called myself i was an altar boy in the catholic church but i'm born as a jew and i practice as a jew i'm not afraid to do i have a bit of that too actually of of jewishness (laughs) Yes. Oh, I didn't know that. I thought One, you were a yeah. uh, Polish Catholic. My, no, well, I was, but, you know, a lot of Polish Catholics weren't entirely Catholic by choice. <laughs> <laughs> or it was complicated. Yeah. And uh, my grand, my paternal grandfather was Jewish. Oh, wow. Uh, we, we think. Yeah. And uh, he wasn't, he didn't practice in any way, either Catholicism or Judaism, but that's, uh, that's another story. <laughs> that's not uncommon. That that's that's probably more common with Jews right. than almost anybody. But um, right. my question is, you know, can religion does religion inform you in any way? I read the Bible every day. I read a section of it of the Old Testament well, only, uh, you know, because it's part of the Jewish tradition. We read the whole Torah, the Old Testament, once yeah. per year, and every day there's one seventh of a weekly portion that we read. And well, 
And so for me, it's, it's always, I always look to it and I say, you know, is this scientific? I wrestle with it. Is this not scientific? <laughs> and I remember this conversation I had with Milad now, not too long ago. And we were talking about uh, Stephen Hawking's uh, famous book, A Brief History of Time, which when I read mm-hmm. it, I didn't understand. I was only 17 or something when it came out, 18, 16. <laughs> but, uh, but now I understand it really well. And I understand what he was trying to do in that book, which was really to make the case for God's existence not necessary, not to invalidate God's existence, but he talked about the two reasons for God would be to establish the laws of nature, you know, basically establish the laws of nature as well and the laws of physics by, by which he meant that, but but really also to establish the universe uh, as a whole. And mm-hmm. what he said was, mm-hmm. you know, God d- could be avoided the necessity of starting the universe if the Hawking-Hartle conjecture is true, the no-boundary conjecture. <laughs> and that was really the basis of the yeah. book, Frank. I urge you to read that book again because he's really saying that that is not controversial. <laughs> and it still is controversial. But the second thing he says is... Of course. It's, well, yeah, okay. I would say it's not even controversial, but that's another question. <laughs> <laughs> <All right>. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's what uh, pa- Pauli used to say. What, not even wrong. But, um, right. But, uh, but, but then he said that M theory in the grand design with Leonard Milad now, he says that M theory provides the conditions for the laws of nature. And so in both instance, instantiations of God's necessity, it's no Now, again, I am a practicing devout agnostic. <laughs> I'm agnostic as they come, but I think it's important to wrestle with these. What, well, what does the, what does, you know, your study, your knowledge of religion, what does it, um, does it do something? Does it satisfy something to, in you that your equations cannot? Is it just philosophy? What is religion well, to you? I mean, let me let me first say that uh, I do not adhere to any uh, any established religion. Right. I was brought. I when I was growing up in, in, into my early teen years, I was absolutely fascinated and deeply steeped. In Roman Catholicism, which, which I was exposed, to. so I, I, a lot of my cultural heritage is from that, and so that's why I can, you know, I refer to it because it's part of why my intellectual furniture, so to speak, and I still have a lot of respect and admiration for that tradition. Uh, it's it's quite flawed, it's quite complicated and human. <laughs> But that contains some very beautiful things, and, and broadly considered, the whole Judeo-Christian tradition uh, is, you know, is is part of who we are if we grow up in, as you and I did in the in the 20th century and 21st century United States. It just it, it is, it is. It's everywhere around us, and uh, um, so so it's 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 part. You know, it's. To to uh, uh, ignore it or minimize it or uh, uh, attempt to uh, uh, how should I say stigmatize it or is it was it's like cutting off your arm or yeah. doing a lobotomy a part of you you don't you you lose a lot if if you do lose that cultural reference and and there are things about. Uh, getting around in the world and making sense of it that science doesn't answer and we fame i i very much agree with david hume's analysis that uh no no amount of thinking about what is can 
lead to a logical inference about what ought to be, you know, or how we ought to behave or what's white. Right. So uh, it, it can give you insight about the consequences of different choices and, you know, lead to a kind of wisdom at that level. But it can't ultimately decide what, what you want to do or what's right or what's good or what's bad. Right. Those are different categories. Uh, and people have thought about those things for a lot of time, a lot, long time, gathered a lot of experience. And a lot of that is in traditions and uh, including religious ones so i mean this, this is a rambling answer but <laughs> the uh the so i think it's 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 uh not a good idea to to just uh ignore or dump on or trivialize those traditions i think uh, in the spirit of complementarity you can learn from them right and and also relate better to people who come from different perspectives if you, if you uh, take it seriously and try to understand um, what what they're thinking about uh, but to me sort of the, the the approach to those questions that's proved most sympathetic and uh, fulfilling or, uh, in the long run to me is to understand God through God's works to understand uh, you know what what it's all about what it all means by first understanding what it is <laughs> and, then, and then that teaches you a lot right. about uh, those other questions uh, certainly is, is background knowledge you should have to approach them uh, with the seriousness they deserve and so that, that that's that's what I've been okay. that's what I've been trying to do and that's certainly what I try to convey in fundamentals yeah yeah towards the end of the book uh, we're coming to the end of the conversation I know you've got a lot of media appearances from your home studio uh, the reporters outside uh, but I do want to cover a couple things and you promised me an answer last time to a question I asked all my guests when we spoke in November uh, and so I want to get to that question in just a second but before we go there the the book kind of I don't I hate it when Authors are asked to, you know, summarize your entire book so the audience doesn't have to buy the the uh, the book or the <laughs> audio book. So I, I will listen to this book. I have a copy of the book, obviously, and uh, maybe we'll give a copy away to one of my listeners, uh, depending on uh, depending on how you feel. I'd love to get a signed copy someday. But I do want to ask you, uh, at the end of the book, you talk about complementarity, and right before that, you talk about complexity and emerging complexity. I spoke to your crosstown yeah. your crosstown rival Avi Loeb uh, last week about his new book called Extra, <laughs> Extraterrestrial, and he talks a lot in that book about this technology that he believes visited our solar system back in 2017. But a good portion of the book, it you, you find that astonishing. <laughs> What's that? Yeah. Are you there? I said, oh, my gosh. Yes. Yeah, I'm there. That's what there he says. He says, but, yes. Uh, maybe it was the extraterrestrials. <laughs> <laughs> well, the first thing I want to ask you. Uh, really, their beans or something. <laughs> yeah. The first thing I want to do is, is, is ask you about that. Um, not that hypothesis. You'll have to read the book as I did. But, um, but if complexity is an emergent property of the universe, um, first of all, do you believe there is, uh, the, you know, that there will be found evidence for extraterrestrial intelligence? Is there a preponderance of evidence? Is that unanswerable? And second of all, would they oh, have okay. structures like religion and extraterrestrial civilizations if they do exist, if complexity is a fundamental feature of the universe? <laughs> yes. Well, okay. To the first question, of course, well, 
okay, unless there's something I don't know about, there doesn't seem the, the I, I'd say the situation is we don't have direct evidence for any kind of extraterrestrial intelligence. However, to me, the probabilities are overwhelming. There's a kind of circumstantial reasons to suspect that it should be abundant and uh, and it's not a paradox that we haven't seen it because it's far away and difficult to communicate. Uh, and also, uh, when I say it's abundant, I should say what it is. Okay, so here on Earth, uh, we know that as soon as the conditions became not crazy, so to speak, as soon as the earth began to solidify and, and cool down and have a reasonable degree of stability and form uh, liquid oceans and so forth. It didn't take very long for a life to emerge. And, and also, you know, the chemistry is complicated, but not crazily complicated to get life started. So I believe it's very likely that, uh, uh, life would start on a variety, a large number of the kinds of planets that people are discovering now, extra, extra solar planets, uh, in, in great abundance. So they're not a rare thing. They're, you know, again, zillions of them in the galaxy. So we have many billions, probably, of potential. I believe the uh, precise term is gajillion, gajillion, Frank. That's <laughs> gajillion. <laughs> uh, in our galaxy. And then, of course, there are lots and lots of galaxies. Uh, so I do think that life is probably is abundant in the universe. Uh, however, uh, again, consulting the history of life on Earth, which uh, it took a long time for multicellular life to uh, emerge, and it took you know kind of special conditions of stability and. Uh, uh, kind of uh, having a nice state a nice star that that's uh, that has a leisurely evolution and uh, a plant of uh, an orbit that's precisely circular and a moon to kind of stir things up and play tech there seemed to uh, although you know we can't say what it would have happened if any of these things hadn't been in place it does seem that the step it seems to me that the step from uh, simple, life, which is sort of at the level of glorified chemistry <laughs> to multicellular forms uh, is a much is a difficult step. And on Earth, that took a long, long time. Right. Uh, that took billions of years. And then on top of that, uh, then uh, to get from there to something we called intelligence, that's that we would recognize as human level intelligence has only been realized in humans, basically, <laughs> uh, with you know, use of language and abstract concepts and so forth. And of course, the growth of technology is only about 200 years old, so, and embodied a lot of contingencies, such as wiping out the dinosaurs that, right. uh, yeah I, I call different. that the uh, the hard problem of the whale so I think the, I think the I think extraterrestrial intelligence and extraterrestrial technology might be rare even though extraterrestrial life is common yeah uh, but I don't know this is this is very difficult speculative stuff I do <laughs> right no I, I, I agree and uh, that's why it's so surprising that Avi is, is so is so convinced but, 
with high certainty <laughs> that this was alien technology. And I, I didn't ask him this question, but well, I always alien technology in the sense of physical objects that they throw into our vicinity seems to me extraordinarily far-fetched. Uh, well, it's that's a very the- inefficient way. It's a very inefficient way to explore the universe to act to throw physical objects around. <laughs> it takes a very, you know, it takes a very long time. Well, let me. And let me, why do it? You yeah. know, and, and you have to know where to throw it. And so, have, you know, it just it's uh, it just it seems a priori so far fetched. That, uh, <laughs> well, I, that's I, what he I, said. I, you would say. I can't, that's what I he find said. it hard to get excited about UFOs or whatever. The the. the uh, uh, on the other hand, you know, there's Arthur C. Clarke's third law that says that any sufficiently advanced technology looks like magic. So who am I to say what some advanced civilization might be doing? Uh, but OK, but but I'd need to see pretty good evidence to, right. to start thinking well, along yeah. those lines. <laughs> You'll see that in his book. You'll see that in the podcast about his book, which will come out confusingly after this podcast comes out. But yes, the the saying by by Arthur C. Clarke is how we open this podcast with his actual voice. You'll hear it when you listen to the podcast tomorrow. (laughs) But but I do want to say, yeah, in that context, first of all, he doesn't believe that it was necessarily targeting Earth. He thinks it's sort of space, either space junk or space debris, but it was a solar sail. I don't want to get into that too much, but just to say that Elon Musk... (laughs) Elon Musk right now <laughs> is preparing cr- that makes okay but yeah all right well, well I, uh, yeah this is a definitely a uh, diversion from our main themes yeah <laughs> but, yeah I mean the, the question remarkable I... if just say let's just say remarkable if true <laughs> <laughs> that's right astonishing even if false right. um, but yes I, I I talk about this in the context I brought it up in the context of you know is complexity fundamental if complexity is fundamental as you assert you know and kind of religion is is sort of a you know, well, a, a, a superstructure built upon, you know, the culture of the evolved citizens. I think, yeah, I think complexity is, is a, it, I mean, we proved, we know, we are, we, we proved it, we are it. <laughs> we are the proof, really, that uh, complexity is a, a comple- complexity that can support mind is an emergent property of matter under the right conditions. Uh, so to me, that's not, not a hypothesis. That's just a fact. And, uh, uh, we prove it in ourselves. We also prove it with our constructions. Right. Uh, so, but I don't, I wouldn't say it's a, a, uh, a fundamental feature of matter though. It's, it's in the sense, in the sense of fundamental, we discussed that that could, can't be a, uh, understood in terms of more basic principles, the, the more basic principles of quantum field theory and things like that uh, don't themselves refer to complexity, but they turn out to empower complexity. Mm-hmm. We talked about um, with Leonard Milad now and Deepak Chopra well, in our chat called Fundamentally Closer to Truth, which is on my podcast channel and on Deepak Chopra's Chopra well, we got into this kind of meandering conversation about free will and so forth. And I don't really want to revisit that. But I do want to say that, you know, at some point we were debating, you know, if you could know the wave function, you know, for a given uh, for a human being, then you could know, predict basically with absolute certainty how he or she would interact with the world. And I found it very frustrating because 
uh, that presupposes a bunch of things such as, you know, we understand the wave function of the person, we understand the wave function of the universe, <laughs> and we understand the apparatus. Yeah. As you make a point in this book, you know, precision and um, what is it? Precision is sort of complementary. Precision and human precision, precision and human comprehensibility. Yeah. So you have to you have to like alter the system to make a precise. The more you uh, want precision yeah. in your measurements, the more you have to interact with it. So how could you possibly? Anyway, yeah. I was on your side in that, but I want to ask you a question. <laughs> I've, I've had debates with people like Sean Carroll and so forth about about religion, about the multiverse, etc. Wherein you'll hear things like. Well, you know, before the universe existed, even your your co-author, you know, uh, Lawrence Krauss and you have, have done you know, written papers together. He'll say, well, the laws of physics, you know, allow for a multiverse. Therefore, the multiverse can occur. But I want to ask you, where does the do you can we ever know things like where the wave function of the universe came from? Or Sean Carroll says, you know, well, there's a Hilbert space and that's all you need. Okay, that's great. But where did the <laughs> Hilbert space come from? Are these like the same kind of frustrating stupid questions that I asked you about free will or are these fruitful well, avenues for discussion? Because no. sometimes, you know, you know, the best part is knowing when Some, to say no. <laughs> well, so yes, yes. <laughs> you kind of know when to say no. <laughs> yeah. Uh, this really goes back to the discussion we had earlier about how I decide what to work on. Mm. And some questions are more fruitful than others. You know, any bum on the street can say, what's it all about? And yeah. uh, <laughs> what's the meaning of it all? And, and okay, yeah. And, and uh, you know, I wouldn't call them bums, but we've had a long history of philosophers who <laughs> uh, even, even, you know, some that are highly regarded and, and still studied that, uh, to me, have had discussions that are kind of so vague and so meandering that they don't lead anywhere. Uh, so pseudo profound, I would say. But that doesn't mean there aren't legitimate questions that are of great interest around those issues. It's just a matter of separating the wheat from the chaff. Yeah. Yeah. When you look at a, um, when you think about things like uh, the the sort of impossible to answer questions that we should we should have just said you know citation Descartes you know sixteen eighty seven you know he needs to boost his H index a little bit. Uh, but uh, but I but I guess you know what fascinates me about your work is that you don't shy away from the big questions, but you're actually really keen on answering you know particular questions. And and in fact, you say in the book, you say you know if there's justice in the universe, we will find you know axions. C can you tell me what, <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean? Are you serious? Do you feel like that's you know kind oh, of that, like I'm, Einstein no, said you know if no, if, if, if what's that? I, I, I I'm not I'm obviously I'm not serious that it's it's. Justice. I mean, no, no one will be guilty of any crime if axions <laughs> are not the dark matter. But, uh, but I, uh, but I just mean it would be a pity if so much circumstantial evidence from uh, nature, you know, uh, were misleading. So it's sort of a vast cosmic joke. I think. I think, you know, I'd like to think that God has better taste than that <laughs> to, to mislead us that way. <laughs> but, uh, uh, it, you know, some some ideas, I, I mean, this is something I've felt several times in my career that that's such and such an equation, such and such an idea is too beautiful not to be true. 
and mostly that's been correct. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, but we're still waiting for proton decay. We're still waiting for uh, low energy supersymmetry. So right. sometimes things that I thought, uh, uh, if there's any justice in the world, they should be happen. They should happen. At, at least they haven't happened yet. And uh, <laughs> I, I wanted to because uh, in in your previous book in uh, in a beautiful question you. You say, you know, I think supersymmetry will be found within the next five years. I think we're about year four and a half. So I want to make a bet. <laughs> I want to make some bets with you, uh, no, Frank, maybe offline. No, I'm, I'm afraid that's that's when it seems, uh, uh, how should I say, no more bets are being taken on that one. All right. What about axioms? Would you like to make a bet? The LHC has, unfortunately, the LHC has more or less exhausted, not quite, but close to, I would say, uh, having exhausted its potential for uh, discovering low energy supersymmetry. And there's no nothing on the horizon in the near future that's going to be able to uh, address that question more more closely. Right. Uh, well, I want to... Um, axions, axions, on the other hand, we're just now getting into uh, the sophistication and... Uh, power of technology to uh, make a serious try at, at detecting them. So yeah. I'm yeah. So I wanted to offer pissed. a bet with you, Frank. I want to offer a bet that uh, we buy each other the most, the largest stuffed mascot of each other's university in five years. I will give it to you if axions are, dis- <laughs> are, are not discovered. And you will give it to me if axions <laughs> are discovered. So no matter what, we both win. Okay? Do you, All right. Do you accept what that bet? All right. We have it on tape. So, well, giant- I, oh, I, I need to know what the university is. Oh, oh, UC San Diego. Oh, that's fine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't say tuition. I didn't say you have to pay tuition for my kids. But all right, you get me a giant stuffed beaver if it's not detect if it is detected, and I get you a giant stuffed triton. <laughs> Okay, I'm going to finish up. So with, that's that's where you that's where you got your degree. Oh no no no! I meant uh, our current u- university. Oh. oh, our current university. Oh, okay. I right, that's yeah. fine. Either so, way, it's fine. So you'll All you'll right. get me a giant <laughs> stuffed we'll beaver. Yes, if if I'm if if if, <laughs> right. and I'll get you a stuffed triton, which I don't even know what that is, but uh, but anyway, I'll get it for you. Okay. <laughs> So uh, the last thing I want to talk about just before we uh, we wrap up is uh, your work with uh, one of your students or post. I can't pronounce his name. He's of European extraction. uh, And it's about detecting the quantum nature of gravitational waves using. Well, okay, that's with uh, with Malik Parikh, who was a student of mine and George Zaharide, who's a student of his Ah. or a postdoc with him. Great. Um, Where is that? What is the status of that? And why is it important to establish the quantized nature of gravity um, uh, for for us to understand the nature of of the fundamentals of reality? Well, I would have said before we got involved in this that uh, it's important to show because people, various people have uh, doubted it. (laughs) And, uh, and well, it's always it's always important to uh, to do things establish that things things you think are true actually actually are true in the world. I mean, you're, they're, they're, you can be surprised, obviously, and people. Uh, um, but uh, in the course of this investigation, uh, I think I came to realize, or we, and we came to realize, 
that uh, gravi- the, the classical treatment of gravitational radiation, uh, really not just in principle, but in reality, uh, ha- is fundamentally flawed. Or, I mean, it's fundamentally lim- flawed is too strong. It's fundamentally limited. The uh, we know quantum mechanics governs the world. I think most people, well, most people who are qualified to pronounce on the question think so. Uh, and um, uh, and we know that there is such a thing as gravity, and we know that there is such a thing as gravitational waves. And so it it's it behooves us to put that phenomenon in the framework of quantum mechanics and the framework of our understanding of the rest of the world, and that's been done in the literature of course you have to do that in order to design LIGO and detectors and think about them uh, but it's basically been making assumptions about the nature of gravitational waves which reduce them to a classical phenomenon we could discuss the technicalities but basically that's that's uh, the message and i now think that that is severely limited that that's very misleading uh, as regards the last moments of black hole mergers, where the equations become nonlinear, and I think the, the the gravitational waves during that period uh, will not be well described as classical, and so so originally the the motivation was kind of uh, uh, dotting the i's and crossing the t's and uh, and uh, just showing that it could be done consistently now i think there's actually new ground to be broken wow yeah i uh i was was very curious about that because i think you know there's this notion that gravity has to be quantized and and even you know part of this you know theory of everything which which is what i want to close up talking about why are there so many theories of everything? I mean, we all, I, I get two emails a week about a theory of everything. <laughs> well, that's because there isn't a theory of everything. <laughs> <laughs> but I, so, yeah, so, so I always point out, I never get, I never get should, emails. No, of, I, I should be very, I should be more careful. I was yeah. going to say, fools rush in where angels fear to tread. <laughs> okay. okay. Yeah, that's less, point. yeah, good job, Frank. Oh, that's less controversial than. Even by, yeah, the, uh, um, uh, but uh, well, first of all, let me let me clarify this whole. I, I really dislike this phrase "theory of everything" because what people are really talking about is. I think it's better, much better, to to, to a much better uh, version of that is what was is what Weinberg calls it a, a final theory, but. First of all, so a final theory would be a an account of the fundamental laws of nature, which we could argue about exactly what that encompasses. Does it encompass the Big Bang? Does it encompass initial conditions or just the, does just the laws of how things evolve in time? But OK, let, let's leave that question vague for the moment <laughs> if uh, but but uh, a description that so that's that's everywhere we check it in in experiments is correct and it uh, it describe it there's then there's no phenomenon that we have observed that's left out of it and that it has a kind of logical closure it's so beautiful 
and so difficult to imagine changing in a consistent way that it's a it becomes a final theory. People lose motivation to try to do better. This is it as far as fundamental laws of nature are concerned, because you know it's, it's battle tested. Uh, doesn't seem to be ready. Doesn't seem to be open to change, and is it seems to be complete. Mm. So that would be a final theory of fundamental physical law. It would not be a theory of everything. It would not be a theory of uh, much of anything, really. It wouldn't be a, a theory of the history of Sweden or the, his or, uh, uh, or the description of human beings or their behavior or, or uh, you know, lots of things that we think of as part of everything. <laughs> Most people would say <laughs> everything about everything. <laughs> okay, but, but, but a final theory that, that so, and, uh, we have a fairly close approximation to that, I would say, in our uh, core theory or standard model of how the strong, weak, and electromagnetic interactions work and, and, and then how it fits together with gravity and, and works with quantum mechanics. And uh, for purposes of engineering, for biology, for chemistry, for physics, for most of physics and uh, uh, most of astrophysics, uh, well, everything except a few corners of cosmology, uh, those laws have that character. They, they, they are uh, complete. <laughs> they are battle tested. <laughs> they uh, uh, are very difficult to change. And okay, so the, so we have a model, and and we have also ideas about unification, and vaguer ideas about string theory that might take it further and and get an even better approximation to a final theory. So that that's that's what it means. I think somehow that rambling discussion included the answer to your question. Yes, but if I not, think it maybe did. you can sign no. it. Yes, <laughs> so yeah, I I, think, I, I only uh, like so to. I think we might achieve a theory, uh, uh, a final theory. It would not deserve the name of a theory of everything, and we're not. And in, in my opinion, we're not all that close. We we have achieved it in a certain practical sense. I don't think we're very close to it in a philosophical sense. I think there are too many open issues and loose ends to say that we certainly. I mean, you know, Hawking's claim that M theory is 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 a final theory, which is essentially what he's claiming, is just silly. Yeah, it's not. Yeah. It, <laughs> it, it's not battle tested. Mm -hmm. It has not made concrete predictions about physical phenomena, let, let alone a complete set of predictions. Right. So, calling. So that's just silly. But uh, the, the, yes, that. So, but one could imagine improving what we have now, so it deserves the name of a final theory. Uh, as I said, we do have a, a final theory for for many practical purposes, but that does not mean it's a theory of everything. Yeah. It's a theory of uh, it's a foundation maybe for yeah. uh, the core understanding yeah. the physical world, but yeah. but it does not treat questions of emergence or creativity or uh, or the actual objects that exist around us. Yeah. <laughs> No, I think that's a beautiful way to phrase it in a way that is actually radically not uh, controversial, <laughs> because I think I think sure. you're right. It, 
Yeah, it's, but it raises a lot of people's hackles because they're invested in uh, glamorizing their work, or you know, which, yeah. <laughs> well, I always say, you know, I get a lot more emails. I've never gotten an email that says, you know, Boltzmann was wrong. Let me show you how. It's always Einstein was wrong or Wilczek is wrong. Yes. Uh, not, uh, not false. But let me just uh, close out that last section before I get to the final questions by saying I never get emails about an experiment of everything. And one of the most beautiful things in a beautiful question to me was that you, you talk about ways that scientists in the uh, early, you know, 18th century, like Isaac Newton, were testing things that would eventually become part of the core theory, namely, you know, the wave-like and particle-like nature, different manifestations of matter and, and light. You know, for example, the, the, uh, the continuity of the rainbow, of the spectrum. And it reminded me of, of Richard Feynman said, you know, if an alien civilization exists and they're intelligent, they should be able to predict that sometimes we see rainbows in our in our atmosphere, yes. because it's it's based on physical yes. laws. It wouldn't it wouldn't necessarily uh, really reveal how we feel when we see a rainbow or, or what that rainbow has been yeah. interpreted by religions around the world. But it made me think that or you know we are we are the hard part is we not the rainbow right yes <laughs> right and since right. you know. As you pointed out, there's literally thought to be trillions of exoplanets. It always it always um, galls me a little bit when people say, you know, there's there's probably a trillion planets just like the Earth in the history of the observable universe. And I'm like, don't we want to focus on our own galaxy first, you know, before we go back 13 <laughs> billion years to to some galaxy that's that distance away in light years? Anyway, I want to ask you: um, Are there um, kind of lurking hints at a final theory? at the final evolution of the core theory, you know, perhaps in data that people haven't fully mined. When we look at, you know, exoplanet data, there's tons of it out there and, and we don't have enough time to analyze it. Um, when we look at, you know, Avi Loeb claims that when the Vera Rubin Observatory comes online, we'll find many of these Oumuamua-like objects. But that suggests to me that maybe there's data in the LHC or in CERN or in uh, Fermilab data or yeah. or in some very, very, you know, in, in laboratory physics data, like you have shown with, with enions, with quasi-particles, with topological insulators. Yeah. These are things that could have implications on a cosmological scale that nobody pays attention to and nobody writes me about, Professor Keating, I need uh, $10,000 <laughs> to do an experiment or to look and mine the data. Uh, Instead, it's, let me come up yes. with this theory of time like Julian Barber's doing now, who's going <laughs> to come on the show. But why is it that we are not putting as much attention and looking at archival data for clues to even some of these grand concepts and issues that people are caring about well it's you have to make a concrete proposal i guess that's uh but i do have some sympathy for the idea that there may be ways of analyzing either existing data or uh, practical laboratory experiments as opposed to, uh, uh, you know, thought experiments that would require thought accelerators that are not likely to appear or, or uh, you know, thought black holes that we don't <laughs> actually have access to. Uh, but um, I, the, there is a thought uh, black hole, Frank. Frank, there is a thought black hole where ideas go to die. <laughs> it's called Twitter. It's called Twitter. <laughs> yeah. Avoid it at all costs. Right. Uh, <laughs> Right. So, but, but yeah, so I, ha I, I do have sympathy for the idea and, and that, uh, there may be new ways of analyzing low energy phenomena that will, uh, 
reveal absolutely fundamental new insights. Uh, well, concretely, I think the search for electric dipole moments of elementary particles is one. Of course, the search for axions is carried on through new kinds of antennas that ultimately are low energy observations. Uh, the um, the quantum nature of gravitational waves, I think, is a matter of doing delicate processing of information and maybe setting up slightly different kinds of in well maybe not so slightly but different different antennas that are that are uh, sensitive to entanglement mm -hmm. and sort of more subtle aspects of radiation fields so yeah i do think there's a lot of room for creativity yeah. on the other hand uh just because the core theory does have the property of kind of closure it's very difficult to change its basic principles without ruining it. And the ways you can change it tend to be things that uh, are very challenging to uh, probe experimentally. Sort right. of. In well, a way, that's, we're the victims of our own success in a way. We've understood so many kinds of experiments and managed to... Uh, construct this theory that describes them so well that it's very hard to improve but maybe there'll be some some marvelous surprise yeah that uh, that, that i haven't envisaged <laughs> <laughs> now yeah as, as uh, uh upcoming guest nima arkani hamed says he uh it's very difficult to break you know the standard model the core theory it's very hard to to disturb it in such a way that you uh that you you know, can make fruitful predictions yeah. that are novel and, and right. in a way that the core theory almost has an, in, as an intelligence, a resilience that makes <laughs> it very hard to, to break. Okay. I want to wrap up cause I know That's, you've got a million, uh, things to do today. It's, it's, it's based, it's based on profound principles. So unless you want to define some, somehow, def, uh, renounce one of the profound principles <laughs> it's very it seems to be very difficult to change you can but you can augment it mm. you can add things to it that also embrace the profound principles and that i mean axions are an example of that yeah and certainly you can derive new phenomena from it it's a very you know the people haven't exhausted its content you know i mean for heaven's sake people haven't exhausted the content of the integers people just <laughs> proved from Oslo's theorem so you know so uh, so there's a lot you know a lot more to be drawn out of it but uh but as as to changing it in uh in really basic ways that change its profound principles that's 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 that seems to be really tough because it works yeah <laughs> yeah you break it you bought it right if uh, <laughs> i want to thank you for many things for right. being an inspiration to many of us in the world uh both in the sciences and outside of the sciences this book is a is a gateway drug into the mind of frank wilczek uh it is uh is a book full of meaning and actually, you know, the, the laws of physics describe what the world is, but, uh, but I think the way that you look at it gives, uh, gives a sort of prose, but infused with, with the way a scientist should look at the world. And I found it very beautiful, very moving, almost emotional at some points. And, and I want to thank you for being vulnerable and, 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 and also courageous, as I know you always are. So thank you for sharing so much of your time. Good luck with the book. Thank you. Yeah. 
and uh, we'll talk to you, you again okay. soon when your when your murder mystery comes out. Till next time. Yes. Till next time. I hope this is. I'm sure there'll be many next times. Okay, it's a joy. <laughs> Thank All you, right. Frank. Bye for now. Bye bye. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. If you enjoyed this episode of Into the Impossible with Professor Brian Keating, please subscribe, comment, share, and review. Watch on YouTube, listen on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or Stitcher. We appreciate hearing from you and are always open to your suggestions for future episodes. For more information and to sign up for Professor Keating's mailing list, go to briankeating.com. Follow Professor Keating on Medium and Twitter at Dr. Brian Keating, Dr. Brian Keating. For more information on the Clark Center, go to imagination.ucsd.edu. Into the Impossible is a production of the Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination at the University of California, San Diego, in the Division of Physical Sciences. Eric Veery, Director. Brian Keating, Co-Director. Produced by Brian Keating and Stuart Balcoe.